Okay, another great episode here on the Ortho Show podcast where we're featuring Will Kurtz, who's an orthopedic surgeon, specializes in joint replacement down in Nashville, Tennessee. Will's a really thoughtful guy. He's not your classic orthopedic surgeon. Uh, he's super smart, has great ideas, really trying to push uh, and innovate so that doctors can sort of regain control of the healthcare space, which we have certainly lost. Uh, he has this amazing article in the Joey Journal where he talks about the commoditization of doctors and how we're like flat screen TVs. We used to be really valuable, but now you can get a great one for 300 bucks, just like orthopedists at this point now where we're being pushed down into uh, the, the way in which we get compensated. So it's a real interesting episode, very different and uh, unusual from what we've done on, on others. I think you're really going to like it. Dr. Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro. We want to thank our sponsor, Heron Therapeutics. Heron Therapeutics invites you to enter a new world of post-operative pain management with the first and only extended release dual-acting local anesthetic Zinrelief, Bupivacaine, and Meloxicam. Zinrelief has an important class-wide non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug box warning that includes a risk of serious cardiovascular and gastrointestinal events and is contraindicated in coronary artery bypass graft surgery. Avoid use in highly vascular surgery in patients with severe heart failure. See warnings about patient monitoring, risk of fetal toxicity, limits use after 20 weeks gestation, and avoiding use after 30. Please see show notes to access full prescribing information, including boxed warning. Visit www.zinrelief.com. That's www.zynrelef.com for more information. From medical media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where everyone knows we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic world. Today is no exception. We have Dr. Will Kurtz, who's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in joint replacement. I'm telling you right now, he is Nashville's hip and knee replacement specialist and surgeon. I know because I read it on his website, so we know that's the case. Corey Callendine may have an issue with that, but we'll put up with that for another time. But Will, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. So. Uh, my pleasure. So, uh, you know, we've been looking forward to having you on. It took us a little bit of time to get here, but here we are. So we're excited. We always like to start uh, at the beginning. You know, I think it's always interesting for our listeners. We have a lot of non-orthopedic listeners too, but uh, residents and fellows and stuff. How did orthopedics become a part of your life? When was it? Was it early? Was it late? When did you decide? Yeah, so I was uh, 16, and my high school had a program where you could go work with uh, doctors. And so I went and spent three weeks in the OR with an op uh, orthopedic surgeon and fell in love. And so I've been constantly trying to recreate that for a lot of high school students today. So we do a lot of a lot of chaper or shepherding of uh, mentoring of high school students today to kind of get them in the OR, show them how much fun we have. I, I fell in love with just all the all the tools, but then also just it's a fun environment to be in the operating room. Everybody on the show knows that. And I think when when kids get exposed to that, they just fall in love with orthopedics. And I I wrote my 
college essay, my med school essay, why I wanted to be a joint replacement surgeon. And that was kind of it from the beginning. <laughs> I never really uh, swayed from that. So I've been on a one track uh, since day one. That's uh, awesome. I, you know, not, not too dissimilar story for me. I was 16. I hurt my knee and was really, you know, played football and lacrosse. And the orthopedic surgeon that I went to was the captain of the team from Johns Hopkins lacrosse. And he was just like the coolest dude. And I'm like, this is exactly what I want to do. And that was it from 16 on. Our last guest was Jason Scopp, who's a sports medicine guy down at Salisbury. He pulled out a kindergarten uh, a note that he had written. He saved all this stuff. And it says, I want to be a doctor when I get older. That's, so the, best. that's, the, win that's the earliest. That's the winner <laughs> for the show so far. But uh, no, that that's really awesome. And I got to tell you, the high school thing, I really want to commend you. That's a great thing to be able to encourage our young generation that this is a great opportunity. I just went to my son's high school this past Monday and gave a, a talk to 65 kids. It was great. Really appreciated that opportunity. So I'm right there with you on that for sure. Yeah. Um, I think if you can get a high schooler to play with bone cement, they're, they're, they're full bought in after that. As soon as they see how much fun bone cement can be, they're, they're, they're sold. There's no question. And now it's like with gaming too. I always joke around with the kids when I'm talking to them. I say, listen, you know, when you're gaming and you're gotten screen time and your mom looks over and says, put down that phone, it's time to get some work done. You say, I'm practicing to be a surgeon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's well, probably some truth in that for sure. <laughs> so you're, you're, are you a Texas guy born and bred or, or no? Yeah, yeah. I grew up 22, uh, 26 years in Texas. So. So, so Rice is an outstanding. You're our first Rice alumnus that we've had on the Ortho Show. Uh, what? Tell me about Rice because it's interesting. It really has such an amazing, you know, sort of reputation, uh, but still sort of unique and away from my world on the East Coast. What was that about? Yeah. How was that? It's a fabulous education. I did engineering there. Um, it's kind of its own little enclave inside of a big city. So, you know, when you're at Rice, you basically just stayed on campus and the rest of the world kind of went around outside of your purview. But um, it was a fabulous education. I was, everyone at Rice was the smartest person they'd ever met. And when we all showed up there, we all realized we were, <laughs> there were some really smart people there. I wasn't one of them. Um, but everyone else was the smartest person ever to graduate from their high school. And I showed up, I was like, eh, I'm okay, but I'm not as good as these guys, but I got through. <laughs> it's amazing for sure. When you, when you realize how many, you know, brilliant people there are out there on the planet when you show up, right. And, yeah. uh, and compare yourself to others. Were, were you able to, so you're an engineering, getting an engineering degree. Were you able to incorporate any of the joint replacement stuff in undergrad? Yeah, um, I worked in the medical center a little bit and did some uh, some design projects for some of the from the, some of the orthopedic surgeons there at UT Houston, which was a blast. Um, but that was a so I would go down in the machine shop and I built them um, some some cool tools just to kind of play around with it. And, and it was it was gone. It was good. So it, it opened up some doors. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there's a lot of ways to get into orthopedics. And I think that uh, for for a lot of our listeners out there, the concept of a of an engineer and perhaps as a physician, they may not go together, but they actually can very well, especially in orthopedics where we tinker with toy, tools and, and things and we make stuff that we have to put in there. So anybody that's that's out there that's doing engineering, you can also have, you know, a real, real terrific degree in medicine as well, if you're interested. So so you stick around for medical school down in, Cal in, in Texas as well. And then you head your you head up to to Vanderbilt for your residency. So tell us about the residency. What was that experience like? Yeah, uh, Vanderbilt was phenomenal. Um, have some of the best memories and best friends of all time from there. 
So, you know, Nashville, that was my first exposure in Nashville, but it was, you know, Vanderbilt is a phenomenal institution. I mean, they balance the autonomy with, you know, um, just, uh, you know, being able to, to teach you and guide you in an appropriate way. They balance those two really well. I feel like a lot of places are too heavy on one side or the other, but they gave you uh, autonomy when you could handle it and you could do some surgeries by yourself in some situations and then other situations there was like heavy handed when it needed to be. But I learned a lot. Uh, the staff or the, the faculty there were phenomenal. Um, and I'm still indebted to them just for all the, they were open, all the doors they opened for me. So it was a great place. I'd highly recommend it. Yeah. I mean, again, for our listeners out there, you should really identify and look into the residencies that you're applying to because many of the residencies really won't allow you to do much, right? You're sort of watching most of the time, but you really do need to be able to have the autonomy to uh, to be able to learn and be able to grow and get the reps that you need. So how does a Southern boy get up to the New England Baptist for an O'Frank Fellowship in 2005? Did they let you across yeah. the Mason-Dixon? What was going on there? Oh, um, in all honesty, my wife is a cardiologist and she uh, kind of gave me a list of places where she could also do her cardiology fellowship while I was still doing my joint fellowship and Boston was number one. And I had uh, a throw out to Craig, Craig Morrison, who was like four years ahead of me. He had done the, the Vandy residency and O'Frank fellowship and he rocked it and they loved him. So I showed up and I think they just said, you're in just because Craig was such an amazing predecessor to me. They were like, oh, you're the same pedigree as Craig. So you're in. So I think that was me fortuitous for me, just following his footsteps or coattails. But uh, yeah, so um, it was a great, great institution. You, you, you know, the Baptist is such a, a gentleman's and gentlewoman's, uh, um, you know, fellowship in that you worked really hard Monday through Friday, but they let you off on the weekends. And, you know, I was newly married and Boston was such a fun town one of the best, best years of our lives, just being newly married in a, in a fun city and getting out and exploring all the New England area. So everyone in Boston was so uh, warm and inviting. So it blew me away how warm and inviting everybody was. It was the exact antithesis of kind of what people had led me to believe. And so I had more dinner parties there than I have in Nashville. So <laughs> I don't know what happened. Some, where, where'd your accent go, dude? I mean, like, I can't, I mean, you spent a year in Boston and your Texas accent's gone. I don't know. What's, yeah, what's, I've never had much of an accent, but yeah, no, that's anyway. awesome. No, I, I love, so I, you know, I've spent some time at the Baptist. That's where I did my training and my residency. So I spent, I don't know, nine months of, to, of my five year, four year career there. And what a, it's just a tremendous place with tremendous, you know, um, leaders in industry as far as the the attendings and the orthopedic surgeons are concerned, but the reps that you get with the volume of surgery that you get in that year, literally, you know, you are ready to rock and roll when you're done that fellowship. You have seen a lot. Yeah. Yeah. We got covered all the bases for arthroplasty. That's for sure. So. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. I remember my time there. The one, the one thing that still sticks out to my memory, we played with the robo doc. So, you know, robots right now are right, ubiquitous in yeah. orthopedic surgery right now. This thing, you know, it, it took up the entire room to be able to move it into the operating room. And the only thing that it could do was ream out the femoral canal. And that was its job. So it's like, like, how is that making it any better than what we were doing by hand? And this thing was like, I don't even know how expensive it was. It was crazy. Yeah. But we've come a long yeah. way. 
It's amazing because I was there in 05 and 06 and Stephen Murphy is, I think, still one of the smartest surgeons I've ever worked with. He had a whole set of software that I utilized to do 3D templating on a bunch of different surgeries just to learn the anatomy and do, and do a little project. But his software that he had in 05 is still better than anything I have today. And that was just like a, a little oh, thing boy. he had on his laptop that was just given to him by a really smart doc and, and, and who put it together. And I was like, this is the coolest thing that, that he had that advancement. And it's already probably still more advanced than most of the stuff we're using today. Yeah, some great, some great leaders down there. That's for sure. So, 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 all right. So now you're heading back to Nashville, right? At that point, you head down uh, to Tennessee to join and go in private practice right out of O'Frank Fellowship. Was that the plan? Yeah, that was always the plan. Uh, my wife had a few more, uh, had two more years on her cardiology fellowship that she finished up in Vanderbilt. So we were always coming back to Nashville, and I love it in Nashville. It is a great. Um, great city to practice in. It's, uh, it, it, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of landscape. There are a lot of different hospitals you can work for. There's a lot of opportunity, uh, for doctors who want to, you know, do good work. And, and that's all it takes really. There's plenty of, plenty of volume here if you, if you do a good job. So, um, yeah, I've been with the same, my organization's Tennessee Orthopedic Alliance. I've been here for 16 years. Um, and it's been great. I've loved my time in Nashville. That's awesome. All right, let's talk about some of the cool stuff that you're involved in that that I I really want to you know get to get to our listeners to be able to hear about. So first of all, let's talk about Ortho Founders. You know, what was the concept? What was the idea? Explain to our listeners what it is and how we get together and discuss cool stuff and ideas. Yeah, that came about probably around 2017, 2018. Um, I was talking to Mike Havig uh, down in South Florida, and he has the company Help Me. Uh, and I, I had a digital company that I was trying to start and he and I were both pitching each other, our individual companies and listening to each other's pitch. And we realized that there were a lot of orthopedic surgeons trying to do that exact same thing. And then we roped in Jay Crawford because he was doing his, uh, next stock, uh, uh, company as well. And so it grew pretty organically just on its own. And, you know, back there from, 2018 to 2000, maybe 2021, 20, we were having monthly meetings. I will admit that I've, it's died off a little bit just because it's a time consuming thing that I haven't put as much energy into as I need to. But um, it was just a collaboration of, uh, it's probably grew to maybe 90, 100 surgeons that will listen in on a Zoom call once every two or three months. And we have two companies typically pitch their product. And we just give them feedback and uh, tell them why it might work and directions that they may need to go and who they should talk to. And so it really, I think, is helpful for for orthopedic surgeons to help out their colleagues who are trying to do something innovative because uh, it is a very hard process to do alone. And I think it is a very isolating process because if any surgeons out there are trying to be innovative, you're probably one of the only guys in your group that's doing it. And everyone else looks to you and says, why are you trying to do all this other stuff? And it's nice to be able to talk it over with other like-minded surgeons to realize that a lot of people are trying to make healthcare better. And, you know, there are other people out there that are probably like you that are trying to trying to find a way to make, make the world a better place or make orthopedics a better place. So it came out organically and um, it has been, it's been a, a joy to hear everyone's kind of progress and, and how they, how they've, started their companies and, and the struggles that they've had. I found that most of the companies have very similar struggles 
it's fundraising and, and hiring and, you know, product market fit and all that other stuff, but it's been great. So, yeah, no, it's a great sounding board for, for people to be able to share ideas and you, you absolutely nailed it. I mean, you know, when I first started the concept of ortho laser, you know, my 12 orthopedic partners were literally, you know, throwing rotten tomatoes at me and kicking me out of the office, right? So when the more the more people are telling you it's a bad idea, more often than not, it probably is a good idea. So it's nice to be able to talk to other innovative people that have the courage to try new things and bringing ortho, you know, entrepreneurs or as Matthew Ray Scott would say, orthopreneurs together to be able to sound off each other. It was really, you're really a great concept and kudos to you for organizing that and making it happen. I know it's not easy with all the things that we do in our lives and all the, the, the aspects that we have. Another interesting thing that you're involved in, which I think as we look at the consolidation in the healthcare market right now that's happening, whether it's you know uh, commercial payers, whether it's hospitals, whether it's primary care doctors merging all together, or whether it's orthopedic surgeons all coming together, uh, is, is the ortho uh, forum group that you're a part of as well. So now you are the president of your Tennessee Orthopedic Alliance. You got 65 or so orthopedic surgeons in your group. Is that correct? Yeah, we're actually up to 106, I believe. Um, wow, but, yeah. good. Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, yeah, we've uh, rolled up a couple of groups in Tennessee. Um, and so um, there's 65 in the Nashville area and then another 50 or so in, in other parts of the state. This episode of the Ortho Show podcast is brought to you by Trackable Med. You work like crazy, but you make less every year. You feel busy, but it's not with the procedures you want. The problem is you rely on referrals, which are out of your control. Maybe you've tried advertising, maybe a new website, but there are always questions. Is it working? Am I wasting money? How can you get more of the patients you want on purpose? Trackable Med. Trackable Med was born out of a frustration with an advertising industry riddled with a lack of accountability to actual outcomes. With Trackable Med, it's all about the results defined as something you can deposit into a bank account. Results are achieved through an approach rooted in neuroscience advertising, web design, and even appointment setting patient engagement solutions. Everything is designed with purpose towards your goal and all with no contracts. Find out if accelerating patient demand for your practice with Trackable Med is a good fit for you. Visit trackablemed.com and click on free consultation. So tell the listeners how this is different because right, private equity is the huge, that's the conversation right now in the orthopedic space. You know, when we went private equity, my group went private equity last year, we're one year in, you know, at the time we were looking, there were seven platforms. I think there's something like 25 orthopedic PE platforms at this point. And I know that or the ortho forum is, is, is a different process, but yet it still brings uh, doctors and groups together to create, you know, positive energy and scalability and all those things. So tell us about what the differences are. Sure. So, uh, you know, my group's Tennessee Orthopedic Alliance. I'm president of that. I'm also on the Ortho Forum board. So the Ortho Forum is 100 private practice groups and in, in total, I think about 5,000 orthopedic surgeons. Uh, and then there's an annual meeting where usually the, the physician leadership of that group and maybe the CEO go to the annual meeting. And basically it's benchmarking where we all kind of share our financial data to get an idea about what works, what, what, you know, is it right to have urgent care? What's the ratio of doctors to PAs, all those different things, what, you know, what your overhead should be, all those things that uh, we basically compare everyone's groups together to figure out what you do well and what you need to work on inside your own group. Um, 
in terms of, you know, it is a, it's a basically a kind of a trade organization in the sense that it's not, the orthoform is not ownership in companies or anything. It's voluntary. Um, it, well, it's by, by membership, but um, it's not, they don't have, orthoform doesn't have direct insight or d- direct control over any of the, those orthopedic groups. Um, it's just a data sharing uh, way to do it. But um, I think a lot of orthopedic surgeons, just to try to tie that into private equity, a lot of orthopedic surgeons are struggling with the complexity in orthopedics these days. It is obviously, you know, harder and harder to, to squeeze, you know, more, you know, blood out of the orange or whatever you want to call it. Um, but uh, we are all trying to figure out how to, how to make it all you know, basically keep our salaries where we're used to them being when we're getting Medicare cuts and everything else. And some people are running to private equity, some people, you know, trying to find a better way to run their own internal shop. Um, the orthoform is just one, one avenue to kind of compare and contrast uh, yourself and, and see where you could be making revenue in other areas, other ancillaries or something like that. So, so, so in summary, so you maintain your, your autonomy as a private practice, but yet you're around other people, you're developing best practices and looking for ideas for ancillary other revenue generation, revenue cycle management, all of these things that help you to sort of have a sounding board outside of your local environment to see if there's things that you can do to augment your practice and be able to do what we do better. So, uh, and still own your own practice and not have big brother or the suits coming around telling you what to do. Yeah, it's pretty accurate. So. Pretty cool. All right. One of the other things that I want to hear from you, because I'm actually considering, uh, you know, I, I, as, as my partner, Dave Perbilla says, you know, I still do about 150 sports total knees a year. You know, I'm a sports medicine <laughs> fellowship trade guy. So I, uh, you know, I've been using patient specific instrumentation. We do a CT scan and we get all the angles and stuff. And then the super smart people out in Warsaw come back and they tell me what size implants I'm supposed to use. And then we print out these little blocks that are custom for the patient. And I actually, you know, I like it. It's it's a measure, measure twice, cut once kind of concept and, and really sort of keeps me in line. And I, I really like the process, but you're part of conformist. You're a big believer in conformist, which is a different process, which is really trying to customize the knee around the individual patient. I'd love to hear more for you uh, from you about your philosophy as to why you like conformis and for our, our patient listeners out there, why you think it's you know potentially a good fit for them. Yeah. You know, if I was to take it back to the very original concept, I guess in when I came out of my fellowship in 05 or 06, 07, I never under I never was um, comfortable with not recreating anatomy. And so I always was drawn to the idea of, hey, let's, there's a varus joint line in the knee. I need to recreate that varus joint line. And I called it Hungerford's measured resection because that's truly what it is. Now that kind of became out of favor because his original measured resections didn't work that well because the PCA implant and it's hard to cut a little bit of varus and everything else. But then, you know, the kinematic alignment wave kind of came and conformis, well, a custom implant with uh, asymmetric poly is just recreating the various joint line. And um, that's all that is. And that's what the kinematic movement is about with doing it with your bone cut. All right, so let's roll the bean footage backwards a little bit because my mother Judy's listening. We've got a lot of non-orthopedic surgeons that are out there listening as well. So there's like two schools of thought. There's the mechanical axis where you put everybody into this exact same angles, regardless of who you are or what you are. 
And then this kinematics thing is you're trying to match the patient's own anatomy a little bit better as you're putting it in. But describe it, you know, in true layman's terms so that someone would say, okay, yeah, I want this conformist knee over standard knee. How would you explain that to a patient in simple terms? In simple terms, the conformist knee is just going to be a customized knee so that those angles are actually constructed into the metal and plastic that a patient is going to get as opposed to a surgeon having to do those calculations, either kind of real time on the fly, just in the operating room out of feel or potentially with a robot. Uh, but either you're either gonna make the, the implant special or you're gonna make your bone cut special. And if you're making the bone cut special and unique and patient specific, then you're either you know having to do some mental math on your own as a surgeon or you're relying on a robot. And if you're making the implant special, then you can kind of cut everything at 90 degree angles. So, so again, just so everybody understands the, the conformist knee then is basically made specifically for the patient that it's going into where a standard total knee, whether you're using a robot or standard cuts comes off the shelf and they have lots of sizes over there. And then you make the cuts and you make the patient fit the prosthesis, if you will. But this way, the prosthesis for the conformist is fitting to the patient. So in theory, it's going to restore your anatomy. And clinical outcomes, I mean, are you happy? I mean, how many have you done? I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, uh, I've done over 3,000. Um, and I've been doing it for the last 10 years or so. Um, yeah, I've been very happy with the outcomes. Um, I It is the best um, outcomes for, for in my hands at least. Um, so I've, I've been very happy with, uh, the product. It's, it's, there's nothing, um, there's nothing to not like, uh, just being able to have an implant that is going to fit right. So it's interesting. They have a new concept coming up their platinum uh, process where in the outpatient setting, a patient can now have the choice, right? Because if you can imagine if there's an implant being made for you specifically, it's going to be more expensive than would be one off the shelf. That kind of makes sense. So now patients will have a choice. You can say, okay, I'll pay out of pocket. I want the fancy Cadillac instead of the Buick. Uh, and let's do that instead. So that's interesting to see how that's going to play out for conformance moving on. But I do think it's an interesting concept. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So let's, I want to talk about another thing. Cause I, you know, I, I was, we're all huge fans of, of, uh, of the Godfather, uh, Ira Kershbaum and his, his amazing journal, which I'm thrilled that you had an article that you placed in for the journal, uh, of, uh, orthopedic experience and innovation. It's a unique journal. Uh, it's an open journal concept that allows everybody to put stuff in. It really sort of breaks this consortium that these political journals have had as far as who's getting published and who isn't. So your article, which I, I, I found fascinating and I'm not smart enough to figure it all out. So that's why I want you to be here so we can go through it is the value creation versus value capture in orthopedics. And it's really awesome. And, and you lead in with the concept, which is it really sort of grabs you very quickly, which is the commoditization of orthopedics in that orthopedic surgeons have been commoditized and we are like flat screen TVs at this point. So, so tell us exactly yeah. what you mean by that. And I think there's a lot of truth in it. So yeah. I think our listeners would be happy to hear it. Yeah, no, I mean, if you think about it, you can go to, to Walmart and buy a flat screen TV for three or 400 bucks that can provide amazing picture quality. And it is, it is you know, 200x better than what you could have bought 10, 20 years ago. Um, and it's dirt cheap. And that's what orthopedics in my mind has become. 
we provide amazing service that is so far better than what we did 10, 20 years ago. And the prices just keep going down. And we all as surgeons complain about it. We think of we should be paid for, you know, what the value that we deliver to our patients. But uh, at the end of the day, Medicare doesn't really care a whole lot about what we think. They just are going to pay us what they're going to pay us. Um, so it's, it's frustrating. Uh, I find that, you know, I, I think about like if you go to fast food, you might buy a, a $2 burger and they probably don't make any money off that $2 burger, but they just keep you around for, or they sell the burger so they can sell you a $2 shake or fries and a $2 soda. And they make tons of profit on the fries and soda. I find like our surgery is a lost leader of sorts where we're just providing surgery so we can hopefully have ancillary streams and own our ASCs and make revenue off these other other model, other forms of uh, income. But our surgery is, we're almost giving it away at cost. And when it comes down to it, it's, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. So. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So, I mean, let's just walk through this for the listeners because I, I always find it fascinating. Everybody just assumes that, you know, the reason that, you know, cost in healthcare is so expensive is because we're paying the doctors so much money. But, you know, let's talk about a knee replacement, for example, right? What's the average implant cost? Let's let's move away from conformis. What, maybe three grand or something like that? $3,000 to get paid for maybe a little less somewhere in there? Yeah, it depends. But yeah, three to 4,000 for a total knee is probably average selling price. Yeah. And then, so as an outpatient surgery, you know, what, let's say in a hospital was the DRG I know for where the code for the reimbursement to the hospital for knee replacements, typically about $23,000 here in Massachusetts. Not sure what it is down in Nashville, probably not too far off. It's about 18. Okay. So $18,000. So out of the 18, the hospital has to pay for the implant and then they keep the rest of the money to recoup all the other stuff. What do we get paid for a 27447, which is an out, which is a total knee replacement code, what does Medicare pay a surgeon right now for that procedure? Uh, it's about 1150 in my, so, my facility, but yeah, it's pretty close. So about $1,100 for uh, a surgical intervention, which you then take on, you know, all of the care for that patient for the next 90 days as well. Right. So, I mean, to make it clear to the listeners, you know, orthopedic surgeons are, are not making a killing doing joint replacements based on the actual surgical inter- intervention that we're doing. It's, it's, it's truly a labor of love for us, but it requires a tremendous amount of volume uh, for us to be able to take care of patients and, and, and do it right. So the bottom line is, is that don't get angry at the doctor. Most of the money's not going to the surgeon. The vast majority of the money's going to the implant manufacturer and then the hospital, you know, setting or perhaps the ASC as well. So, um, but let's let's keep going a little bit on this because one of the other things that I, I found really really great is that you know you talk about market forces, for example, and and why is it that you know an orthopedic surgeon, for example, that can do a knee replacement in forty five minutes that has an infection rate of you know less than 05 percent that can demonstrate that their outcomes of their patients returning to work and having good functional results is not higher up on the spectrum for insurance companies to be able to say, that's where I want my patient to go. It seems like it's a level playing field, regardless of what your outcomes are, everybody gets the same. Yeah. Um, one in a, a bit cynical nature, I would say that the, the, the private commercial payers don't care that much. That's a little bit cynical, but um, I think that probably fits to most degree. Uh, and then secondly, I think our healthcare system hasn't ever really tried to quantify outcomes 
until recently. I think in the last two or three years, they've been working hard at, at trying to uh, measure outcomes and deliver them. But you know, if, if there's there's what happens after the surgery, which is your your outcome measures, uh, and that oftentimes gets called quality. But if you're looking at, you know, really where the savings are in musculoskeletal care, it's more about appropriateness than anything else. It's like what what it, what makes it appropriate to take that patient to the operating room for a knee replacement and the next patient just gets cortisone shots. You know, those are the decisions where the, the crux of the dollar, the dollar savings would be ultimately had. So, I mean, as we're, as we're getting here to a close, I want to, I like your conclusion here. One of the things that, that I found fascinating is you feel like the next free market is when we eliminate sort of the insurance and the, all these hospitals that are putting pressure on us and we go direct to the employers and provide, you know, self-insured care. Talk to us a little bit about how you see that playing out. Yeah, there are really only two places where innovation are happening now. It's the Medicare Advantage market and the direct employer market, because that's the only time when people can actually engage in value-based care. Uh, if you think about it, the commercial payers aren't really that interested in value-based care because their bottom or their profit margin is based off their top line revenue. And so they have every incentive to keep their top line revenue as high as possible. So they don't actually want to save money because they can only keep 15 to 20 percent of their money that they collect. And so they want that 15 to 20% to be of the largest number possible. So Medicare Advantage and direct to employers are kind of where you see the disruption happening. And I think it opens up an opportunity for orthopedic surgeons, but we also have to be aware that it opens up an opportunity for other people who are currently outside of being a provider to come in and kind of steal our lunch or steal our cheese, if you will. Um, so we do have to be cognizant that there are some companies out there, some digital health companies that are really trying to use that direct employer uh, wedge as an opportunity to go around the TPAs and engage with providers and really become the starting point for the musculoskeletal journey that a patient might go on. And that should scare every musculoskeletal provider on this, on this podcast who hears that because if somebody else is capturing our patients ahead of time and filtering through them all and deciding this person gets referred on to that, you know, a, a real a musculoskeletal in, you know, bricks and mortar doctor, or this person just has to stay in the virtual realm, you know, somebody is doing that with their profit motive, you know, is their, is their main driver. And they may not have the same relationship and the same interest in protecting patients as, you know, us providers do, because we have to look across the table at the patient and say, hey, listen, I'm looking out for your best interests. I have a relationship with you. We are two people trying to come up with the best plan for you, whereas if something is in the, in the internet and if, you know, it's virtual, the people are in different states, there's not that bond to the patient. And I think that uh, we need to be, we need to be cognizant of what is being told to our patients because, the digital health providers who are trying to intervene at the start of the funnel, they are selling surgical avoidance. And that is, or, or avoidance of getting in to see a, a brick and mortar doctor. And that needs to be kind of on everyone's radar screen. They're not, they're not really looking out for necessarily patient. They're looking out for, you know, decreasing the bottom line or the cost of the care, which is a, an admirable charge in its own right. But I think it should be done by providers not by, you know, you know, a tech company. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just, I want to thank you. I mean, 
I think that we have lost control. You know, physicians have really lost control of the direction in which healthcare goes. Uh, we sort of sit back and we let all these forces push us around. So this was a wonderful article. I know that you don't just write stuff, you know, you talk to talk to. And so that's what we love here about the ortho show, bringing on unique individuals like yourself who just have, you know, really innovative, creative ideas as to how we can change the marketplace and hopefully take back over. So it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Love to hearing about all of the uh, innovative thoughts and ideas that you have. So thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I want to thank you again, Will. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.